Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number 212. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a quick word of prayer. Avinu Malkinu, our Father, our King, Lord, we ask that you will um, open our eyes and our ears so that we can absorb the teaching that's going to take place tonight, uh, primarily that which is rooted in what you have left for us in your word. Um, Lord, I pray by your spirit that you would allow the words to penetrate and so that we can gain a proper understanding and make proper application. What good is studying the word if you're not going to study in order to do, and like Ezra took it one step further, in order to teach. So that's our model, Lord. We study in order to do, in order to teach others. Thank you, Lord, for this awesome responsibility. Thank you for the topics. Thank you for the students who participate with me week after week. Bless them, Lord. Refresh them. Strengthen them. Keep them safe. And um, just continue to give us um, a boldness, a holy boldness about our witness, about our testimony, about who the Messiah, Yeshua, truly is. And we'll be careful, Lord, to give you the praise and the glory of Hashem, Yeshua. Amen. Thank you, everyone, for joining me week after week for these live internet studies. My name is Arvind Lyman Hanavi, and this is another study on eschatology, a biblical study of end-time events. Let's jump back in where we left off last week. If you look on my screen, you'll see we've got the topic um, index pulled up that I created for these classes. We're now on topic five. So we struck through topic four, Book of Daniel, Prophecies Near and Far. Go back and listen to the last few weeks' studies. If you missed that, we looked through Daniel's chapter two and seven, where we looked at these overview of the um, Gentile nations who were directly affecting Israel um, and her um, her time uh, and uh, um, uh, what should we say, uh, her relationship with God. Um, it wasn't looking too bright because of the exiles, particularly Babylon's exile that sacked uh, the city and the temple and carted the people off. And yet, when we turn to um, Daniel chapter 9, which we're going to do tonight, we're going to see another view of this uh, panoramic, 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 if I can say that right, um, aspect of God dealing with people on this large scale. So let's look at this. Tonight's topic begins, um, I'm not going to finish this in one week, and yet I don't want to drag it out. And yet it's, it's a key topic when it comes to end time prophecies. The book of Daniel the 70 weeks of Daniel is the name of the tonight's topic, and this will go on through tonight, this week, uh, next week, and probably another week. So at least three weeks I'm anticipating that this will be stretched out. I won't, I'll try not to drag it out further than that. So two weeks, maybe three weeks, possibly. So book of Daniel, the 70 weeks of Daniel. Remember, this is a study on the book of Revelation, and we're working our way towards the book of Revelation. And what we're doing is we're filling in all of the background information that I believe is necessary to have a proper appreciation and a better understanding of the book of Revelation. You don't really have to study all these topics, but my, but my strong recommendation is that you do. Um, otherwise, you're going to get kind of a really a superficial understanding of the book of Revelation. You're going to have more questions than you can probably anticipate. So um, there are, before I jump into this topic, let me just introduce the challenge in front of us. The topic is very, very um, profound, and yet it's very simple at the same time. It's the, the, the topic that we're going to look at tonight covers a scant four verses, Daniel 9, 24, 25, 26, and 27. Four verses, that's it. 
And yet the topic actually is also detailed in other parts of the book of Daniel, which then carry over into other prophecies in the Bible, which then get picked up by Yeshua in Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse, which we're going to turn to after this, right, in, in a few weeks down the road. You can see on my screen there, topic six and topic seven, which then gets pulled into um, Paul's uh, writings in the um, books of um, the Thessalonian chapters, and then uh, finally gets pulled into the, book, into the book of Revelation itself. So Daniel's uh, prophecy that starts here in, in chapter 9, it's already been kind of examined in chapter 2 and chapter 7, the, the, the events, as it were. But now God's dream that he gives to Daniel in chapter 9 begins to get a little bit more detail filled in, right? Uh, so remember, Daniel chapter 2 was the statue uh, that Nebuchadnezzar's dream represented. That was kind of a really zoom out view of these end time events uh, seen through the lens of world powers, um, beasts, as we might call them. Um, but they weren't called beasts in Daniel chapter 2. They were metals in, stat in the statue. And um, the Messiah figure shows up as a rock that's without cut without hands and strikes the statue at the feet. That was Daniel chapter 2. We're going to, we'll, we'll, in fact, let me just do this. Did I bring with me? I did. Um, I'll, sh I'll show you a little graphic on the screen here in a moment. That'll be a kind of an overview of what one, what I'm getting at. Daniel chapter seven gives the same um, uh, panoramic perspective of these end time events that will take place from um, dealing with these kingdoms on earth, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and then following and yet it's seen through the lens of these animals, these beasts. And we talked about that last week, how these beasts in Daniel chapter 7 prep us for understanding, a better understanding of the beast in, in uh, the book of Revelation. But um, because we're now in Daniel chapter 9, God gives Daniel another dream. And again, um, this dream is very short, it's terse, but it's compact. I mean, it's just packed with goodies. And yet at the same time, we have now some more details that Daniel's going to talk about as some more in Daniel chapter um, 10 and 11 and 12 and finish out the rest of his book. So what we skipped over, if you're listening, we went from 2 to 7 and then we skipped 8 and then we jumped straight into 9. And what we missed in chapter 8 was a lot of history about the power sh uh, shift from, the, um, from Babylon to the Medes and the Persians and then from the Medes and Persians to, the, to uh, Greece coming on the scene. Um, you can read about that. Um, you, most of you are probably familiar with that, right? The, the 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 ram and the shaggy goat and Alexander the Great and and Antiochus or Antiochus, if you want to say his name that way. So um, what we are learning is that in Daniel, there's this hype and shadow character known as um, Antiochus, Antiochus. I want to say his name that way. Antiochus Epiphanes or Antiochus the Fourth is one of the uh, one of history's more famous types and shadow of another man who's going to come on the scene who's known as the Antichrist. So the book of Daniel is where we're going to get a lot of that detail filled in for us. And book of, and chapter 9 that we're going to be looking at tonight is going to be no exception. So if there's, there's anything that you walk away with when you're reading through these and doing these studies with me, there are lots of resources you can do online. They're going to go through all more details. This is not a deep dive into the book of Daniel chapter 9. Um, I will do my best to make this as simple as possible, yet remain profound. But one thing that has helped me make sense of it, keeping on the simple side of things without getting too complex and getting caught up in all of the debates between 
when does the vision start? What's the time frame? What what what's the decree that we're going to be reading about? Um, who are the who are the prince? Who's the Messiah? Who's the one to come? Um, you know, how do we understand the word weeks in the Hebrew, the Aramaic, the Greek, et cetera, et cetera, the English? You know, there's a lot of details that we could we could camp out for weeks and months on. And many Bible teachers have done that. I don't want to do that. I want to keep it simple, but at the same time, there's there are some there are some goals to the study. So let me just tell you a few of my um goals right up front. One of the main goals, and I'll just bring up this chart that I've used in the past, is to convey this idea to you of prophetic telescoping. The idea that you can see in the picture they've got this prophet standing over on the left side of the screen holding his um, staff there. And he's looking at two mountain peaks in front of him. And the first smaller mountain peak is called the near fulfillment. And the larger mountain peak to the far right of the screen is the far fulfillment. And between those two, there's a time gap. And what I firmly believe in Daniel 9 is a great um example of what we're going to see this what i firmly believe is that the bible will often present a prophetic truth to the prophet or the person writing down the the the, the vision or the dream or whatever words that god's giving them and that prophetic truth will oftentimes have what's called a near fulfillment near to the prophet and then it'll have a far fulfillment far from the prophet so the near and far represents the time frame from the prophet who's writing the vision down Oftentimes, the near fulfillment is a partial fulfillment, and often it's done in what we might call shadow. When we talk about type and shadow, it's a kind of a symbolic version of the prophecy itself. It often doesn't represent the fullness of what the prophecy contains as far as details and um, execution and whatnot, historical fulfillment. But it nevertheless represents part of the prophecy, so it is fulfillment. It's just typically partial and it's near usually to the prophet not always but typically right around the corner like within a few years or maybe within a generation etc um and then there's often this time gap that goes by that the prophet may or may not be aware of because of the kind of the um optical illusion created by prophetic telescoping you got to think about it, if you're the prophet looking at these two peaks you might not see the time gap between the two mountain peaks from your perspective you see the closer mountain and you see the farther mountain and it almost looks like the larger mountain is overshadowing the smaller mountain you might not even be aware that there are two fulfillments you might only be aware of one of them we aren't always given those details but what we can learn now since a lot of prophecy has gone by right since we're living in the end times and we're drawing the age of humanity to a close i firmly believe that then using history and looking backwards and using the Bible as our um, primary guide and using history to verify, um, using, yeah, using history to verify the Bible, not using the Bible to verify history. Well, use them both, both together, but, but the Bible's the final word. But history has come along now and demonstrated that there are a lot of prophecies that there was this gap uh, between first fulfillment or the near fulfillment or the, um, the now fulfillment and the far. So, um, that's one of the primary things I want you to walk away with. Near and far, you have a prophecy that has kind of a partial near or now fulfillment, and then there's a time gap, and then there'll be a far fulfillment, and often that's all there is, just those two. We don't find prophecies that are recycled over and over and over and over again, like kind of idealistic fashion, although there are themes that are repeated over and over in Scripture, concepts, you know, obedience, disobedience, punishment, blessing, um, um, anointed people who come on the scene, 
and bring God's people into kind of a like revival and, and restoration. And then the people fall out of favor with God because they play the harlot and they fall into disobedience and God punishes them. But then he spares a remnant and restores them. And, and so we find these kind of roller coaster ride themes that are repeated throughout the Bible. Um, you know, um, persecution comes and goes, tribulation comes and goes, uh, uh, salvation on a natural level comes and goes, but there are timeless themes also found in the Bible as well, right? The, the, the atonement picture of Messiah, um, the forgiveness that God offers through the Messiah's blood, uh, the death of Messiah on the cross. Obviously there are themes that take place in the Bible that for which there's one event that primarily captures that theme and it's not to be repeated over and over again. So, uh, that's basically how Bible prophecy works. So having said that, um, as we begin to look at this part of Daniel chapter 9, there are these views of end-time prophecy that I have to remind you of over and over again, because as you study Bible prophecy, it becomes imperative that you identify which perspective you that makes the most sense to you as you're reading through commentaries. So when you listen to my commentary, you, you might think, I don't agree with you, Ariel. I disagree with you strongly. Why would you think that this prophecy means that? And perhaps part of the disagreement is because I'm coming from a different um, uh, hermeneutic perspective than you. And so it's helpful to first identify from what hermeneutic perspective you identify with so that when you read other people's um, uh, prophecy, um, other people's uh, commentaries, you can appreciate why you might have a disagreement with them or the reverse is true. You might read a commentary and go, wow, this guy hit it right on the nose. I, I, I agree with him. Why can't everybody else see this? Well, the reason why everybody else can't see this is because we have different camps of prof of um, hermeneutic, of, of kind of a scriptural bias, the way we view um, the Bible and interpret it. So um, I've got three pulled up on the screen. Um, there's really a fourth one that we've talked about, right? Preterism, futurism, idealism, and historicism. We're talking about discovering or uh, interpreting prophecy, but for now, let's just focus on three of the main ones um, that impact us the most because they they kind of represent polar opposites almost when it comes to interpreting prophecy. We've got on the left side of your screen the preterist view of the Book of Revelation, and then on the right side of the screen we've got the futurist view. And hovering above both of them is this long arrow running back and forth called the historicist. And basically the way it works is this. When we're talking about end-time prophecy, specifically the book of Revelation, which includes the book of Daniel that we're going to be looking at tonight, when it comes to preterism and preterists, most preterists uh, hold to views that um, most of the books of the Bible that deal with end-time prophecy have already been fulfilled at the first coming of Messiah, um, 70 AD, the Jewish wars from 67 to 73, culminating in the destruction of um, Jerusalem and plowing under and the kicking out of the Jews in the 160s, the Bar Kokhba revolt and things like that. So all of those events of the first century describe the primary preterist view. Remember, preterism comes in two flavors, full preterism or hyper preterism, where everything basically fulfilled at 70 AD and, and the destruction of Jerusalem and all that in other words, 2,000 years ago, meaning the book of Revelation doesn't contain anything that, that's really going to be coming in the future. And then there's partial preterism, which still carries a lot of the baggage, I call it, of, of full preterism, but it allows for some events to still be future. One of these days, I'll do a whole excursus on just preterism, par partial versus full, but I'm not going to do that tonight. Germane to our study, however, is that preterism is in, it stands in more or less a polar opposite opinion of the futurist view. 
case you're wondering what those little orange symbols are on your screen, they represent the in the in this order from left to right, the seals of the book of Revelation, the trumpets or shofars of the book of Revelation, and the bowls of the Revelation. That's what those little symbols are. The first one on the left is a seal, like a little badge. The one in the middle under historicist is a shofar, a ram's horn, or a trumpet. And the one on the far right is a bowl, like you eat cereal out of. Okay, so Futurist view takes the um, view of uh, that that much of the book of Revelation describes the second coming of Messiah and the destructions surrounding Jerusalem and the, and the tribulations and the coming of, of, of Antichrist and all these things is still future, even future from our day. So meaning when Daniel wrote what he's what we're going to read about tonight and when John wrote what we're going to read about in the book of Revelation, a lot of that was based on history, but it's also a forward-looking prophecy. It hasn't all come to happen yet. Particularly this slice of history known as the 70th week of Daniel, which we're going to talk about tonight. So futurists and preterists are on two opposite sides of the table when it comes to this discussion of what is end-time prophecy, particularly Daniel's 70th week that we're going to be talking about tonight. And then sitting on top of all that is the historicist view that says, well, we don't have to really be so harsh and say that everything's preterist or futurist. Really, the Bible is not really trying to say that any of the time is important. It's really just about these concepts, kind of idealist historicist, and this idea that, historically speaking, many things have come and gone and um, impacted Israel and the church, and they're going to continue to do so until uh, the end of time runs out. And so we don't have to really... Uh, quake in fear with something that's coming down the road, but at the same time, we need to continue reading the Bible and studying it and realizing that there are ideals, that there are history lessons for us. And so the historicist view just kind of sees this long, drawn-out cosmic drama or um, battle between light and darkness that's uh, kind of been impacting Israel and the church for a long, long time. It's just going to keep going that way until God puts an end to all of it. So we don't have to smash everything into either the first century, like the preterists, and we don't have to smash everything into the uh, last 70 year or the last seven years of the tribulation, like the futurists. Instead, just stretch everything out over the last, say, 3,500 years of history between Israel and the church, and that's the best view. That's the historicist view. All right, so that's why when you're reading to people's commentaries and you're you're looking at their their kind of their bottom lines, you're like, okay, yeah, I agree with that, or no, I think I don't agree with that. That's probably why it's because you hold one of these viewpoints. So uh, let's see, did I miss anything there? No, preterists, futurists, historicists. All right, um, okay. Last few weeks, we've been reading through Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7. We talked about beasts, we talked about animals, we talked about metals and a statue. Here's the overview to prep us for Daniel chapter 9, because it's really the same picture, the same story, the same message from God given to Daniel. It's just a different version of it. In Daniel chapter 2, we had four metals. Look at the graphic on the screen here. In Daniel chapter 2, we had four metals. The symbols of the metals were going from top to bottom, from the head of the statue down to the feet. We had the gold, silver, the bronze, the iron, and then the iron and the clay. And the representatives were that the gold was Babylon, which represents, going from left to right, which represented the, um, I'm sorry, let me stop there. The gold was Babylon, the silver was Medo-Persia, the bronze was Greece, and the iron was Rome, and the iron and clay were the ten kingdoms that we were that we we should identify as either a revival of the Roman Empire or kind of the uh, the the um, 
identified with Rome in some way, but maybe not necessarily Rome, right? There's, there's, there's some. That's where the the prophetic telescoping comes into play between the near aspect of Rome, near to Daniel's day, and near to John, who wrote the Book of Revelation, existing in John's day. But at the same time, some of the details in the prophecy are clearly future-facing or far prophecy, right? The the big, the smaller mountain peak and the larger mountain peak behind it. Iron and clay would be the larger mountain peak, and the iron itself would be the smaller mountain peak. So Rome would be the smaller, near part of the prophecy, and the revived Rome, or the ten kingdoms of the New World Order that's going to hit the scene that I believe it's in the future, that would be the far uh, prop, the, the, the far peak, the larger one, that looms behind with this gap in the middle. Um Moving from left to right in this little chart, when we went from when we went from Daniel chapter two to Daniel chapter seven, and going from the metals to the beasts, the symbol changed, but the message was the same. The gold, which represented Babylon, is now represented by a beast known as lion, which is still Babylon. The silver, which represented Medo Persia, was now represented by a bear, which was again Medo Persia in Daniel seven. The bronze of Daniel 2, which was Greece, became a leopard in Daniel chapter 7. And the iron of Daniel 2, which was Rome, became the fourth beast uh, in Daniel chapter 7. And then the iron and clay of the statue, which were the ten kingdoms in Daniel 2, turns into the ten horns of Daniel chapter 7, which are the ten kingdoms. So, they're all the same. Now, when we get to Daniel 9, which we're going to look at tonight, we're not going to find any metals... We're not going to find any beasts per se. What we will find now are time frames given weeks of years and decrees and details concerning um, the city of Jerusalem and the temple. And then we will, as we get farther into the prophecy of those four short verses, chapter uh, verse 26 and 27, we start then beginning to zero in on some of the key players, the prince who's to come, the anointed one, um, the person who makes a covenant with the many, et cetera, et cetera. So that's where we're going with uh, tonight's study. Let me flash some uh, pictures for you again. This was the image of Daniel chapter 2 that I was talking about a moment ago um, that we uh, looked at. But as we're going to be turning to the Daniel 70 weeks, we now begin to look at some different graphics. You can go on the internet and search, search these uh, pictures out Daniel's 70 weeks or 70 weeks of Daniel or something to that effect and you'll end up with some timelines that resemble what we're looking at here I'm going to again try to keep this as simple as possible I know there are going to be those Bible teachers who are going to um, try and pick apart this part of Daniel's prophecy to try and zero in on when does the timing start when does it come to an end who are the key players? And I do believe it's important that we realize or recognize or even be able to somewhat identify when it starts, when it ends, and who are the key players. But for um, our purposes for studying the book of Revelation, and I don't want to disappoint you with this, it's actually not as important that you know when it started, uh, per se, uh, even when it ended, but knowing how it's going to impact us in our present day, given the fact that, historically speaking, Daniel's come and gone, the Messiah has come and gone, yet he's going to come again. And so there's still a tribulation period that is likely to happen. If you think it all happened before, well, then that's why we need to um, pay careful attention to the preterist versus the futurist. Those are the parts that I think uh, have the most bang for your buck. 
uh, because of the way they impact your theology and the way you live your life today. For instance, let me say it this way. If you believe that all of Daniel's 70 weeks has already come and gone, like the preterists say, the hyper-preterists or the full-blown preterists, then you're going to live your life in such a way that you're not really worried about what's coming around the corner per se, because you're not looking for some coming antichrist and a tribulation and a, um, a 70th week of Daniel, et cetera, et cetera. So it's going to impact the way you um, study your Bible and the way you um, say uh, live your life as a Christian. On the other hand, on the flip side, if you are a futurist um, like I am, then you're going to be intensely studying the book of Daniel like we're going to be doing tonight with a view towards the book of Revelation, with a view towards things that are still around the corner, and you're going to be conducting your life as a Christian in a manner to be preparing yourself, you and your family, your friends, your loved ones, for the coming persecution from Antichrist um, and the, the trouble that's going to be uh, hit planet Earth in the future. Those types of things. So I'm not going to get twisted around... Um, when does the 70 week starts? When does it end? There are different, there's like five different possibilities of when it could have started. And that of course impacts when it ends, uh, and things like that. So, um, <coughs> excuse me. So, uh, um, uh, let's study with kind of a, um, keep the majors on, major on the majors and minor on the minors. All right. So here's a chart again, Daniel 70 week. You can see in the chart by the colors. Some of the main things on the chart reading from left to right are that there are 70 weeks which are represented by 490 years and they're broken up into 49 years and then 430 years and then seven years and you can see on the screen and um there's the beginning over on the far left at 445 bc with nehemiah chapter 2 according to this chart and then you can see uh the seven se seven times seven years uh 49 years and then right after that, there's the 62 times 7, which is 434, and those two add up to 483. And then you can see the cross of Christ there. Uh, and then there's a pink slice called the church age. That would represent what, what we're going to call the gap between the 69 weeks of Daniel and the 70th week of Daniel, the final seven-year time period. And then according to this chart, which is clearly pre-trib, pre-millennial, pre-trib refers to um, uh, the rapture of Christ happening prior to the tribulation, seven-year period that people refer to as tribulation. So you can see the little arrow pointing up at the rapture. Um, at the beginning of that slice in the middle where it's called the red, that little red square, the bright red, the tribulation, the seven-year period, one times seven equals seven, which is broken up into three and a half, three and a half. Um, Pre-trib says we are going to be raptured prior to the tribulation, the seven-year tribulation. I don't agree with that view, but just for the sake of this chart, that's what uh, that's the only part I disagree with in this view, per se. The rest of the chart is fairly uh, right on the money, as far as I can tell. Um, and then when we say premillennium, we're talking about Christ's second coming, not the rapture, but Christ's second coming happening prior to the millennial age, which is a thousand years shown on your screen in kind of a, I guess that's a teal color, aqua colored, um, light bluish kind of, light green kind of. Um, second coming and, and Armageddon, and then the kingdom age uh, for a thousand years. And then after the kingdom age for a thousand years, we have the great white throne judgment of Revelation chapter 20, which ushers in the new heaven and the new earth. And that's it. That's this chart. By the way, again, my perspective is that this chart is fairly uh, right on the money. The The thing I disagree with is the, the pre-trib rapture. I hold to a pre-wrath, meaning the, the rapture is sometime in the middle of the second half of the uh, 70th week, about three quarters of the way in. Um, and also the date on the far left that says 445. I 
I think that 445 really is the um, the date that most people should latch onto. But there's another date in the five oh. Uh, 573 or something i'll have to look at 563 something like that where there's a decree that Artaxerxes also um puts in puts in writing uh, that i think is worth looking at we'll look at that in a moment here's another chart of the same thing 70 weeks rightly divided uh this time it's important to see that the 70 weeks is broken up into three sections and daniel himself gives us its breakdown seven weeks and then followed by 62 weeks and then followed by one week which equals 490 weeks how we factor this into being years is is a little bit of just simply common sense as well as context right um if this were simply really literal weeks when we talk about 490 weeks 70 times 7 77s then we'd really be looking at a time period that's a little over like a year and a half or something a little like a year and a third or something it wouldn't be very much time right 490 weeks if they were literal weeks all of the details of what should take place really just honestly couldn't take place in that short amount of time so thus we know that this is symbolic of years and the proof is really that um we're going to see that contextually it must be years as well as the um context from um uh, uh he the hebrew culture which already had uh this idea of 77s when it talks about years of sabbatical years and and jubilee years uh and things like that so um Again, same chart, um, uh, just a, a different kind of um, a slice, a look. We'll, we'll return to these charts in a moment. Here we have another um, chart. Let me see if I can blow that up a little bit. Yeah, that works. Uh, Daniel, 70 weeks. Again, same thing, uh, reading from left to right. Um, we have the uh, prophecy that's given to Daniel, which includes 69 weeks, which is broken up into seven weeks and 62 weeks. Uh, but 49 years and 434 years respectively um then we have the um um church age current gap in the middle there um and then the, the, we have the final one week sitting off to the far right uh which is itself is broken up to do three and a half and three and a half years right um we'll look at these in time let's look at one more chart this one is daniel's 70 weeks as seen through the lens of the preterist um, the other ones that we looked at were more um, futurist views, but this is definitely a preterist perspective. All 70 weeks, all 490 years are contained between the years 455 BC and 36 AD. So that's the preterist perspective. All of it's in the past from our perspective in the year 2023. And you can see it's still broken up into the three parts of seven weeks, followed by 62 weeks, followed by one week. That part, the preterists and the futurists agree on, and I think that's um, solid uh, Bible interpretation, along with the fact that the 490 is representative of years and not merely weeks, like like seven-day week cycle. It's, it's actually years. The preterists and the futurists both agree. What you're going to find, I'll say this over and over again, but it's worth reiterating, there are parts of the preterist perspective that are worth holding on to. It's because of the near far telescope, prophetic telescoping aspect. Parts of the prophecy have been fulfilled in the first century and fit within the first century per, uh, perspective, meaning part of what preterism is bringing to the table is worth listening to. It's accurate, but it's not necessary to go full blown hyper preterism and throw everything into the 
uh, uh, 80, 70 time frame in order to make the prophecy uh, make sense. Indeed, there are parts of preterist perspective that absolutely, I think, are damaging to the biblical text. And they and even the hyper-preterist camp are even borderline heretical. We'll get into those maybe in a different day, a different study, an excursive study on this topic. But I wanted you to see this first, that the preterists have this breakdown uh, for their time frames. And then one final um, image, then I'll jump right into the study, um, is, and this is, remember, I, I looked at a lot of these images a few weeks back uh, during my preview version of Daniel 70 Weeks, but I was listening to this uh, study, watching this YouTube video for the last few weeks on from um, uh, a Christian author, uh, uh, YouTuber by the name of um, Alan Parr. That's his picture you can see on the screen there. I think he looks a lot like me. I think I look like a lot like him. We look, we resemble one another, in my opinion. If you've seen what I look like, you see what Alan Parr looks like, I think we look alike. We both look like Denzel Washington is the point. All three of us look alike, right? You get Alan Parr, Ariel Hanavi, and Denzel Washington in a room, and we look like three brothers having a reunion. All right, just a little bit of humor there. So um, I'm, I'm subscribed to um, uh, Alan Parr's uh, YouTube channel. Great channel. I'm, I'm giving you a little plug for it right now. Um, it's called The Beat, B-E-A-T, um, Biblical Encouragement and Truth, B-E-A-T. And he did a study on the book of Daniel in 90 minutes, right? Great uh, live stream study. I can't really top his study. Uh, I agree with nearly everything he says. Um, most of the details I agree with. And here he's got Daniel 70 weeks broken down, just like we've been looking at. His starting point's a little different. Notice he doesn't have um, 445 BC, like in Nehemiah, instead he has 457. That's the date I was talking about earlier. And I think this is actually the technical date for the decree as is issued from Artaxerxes himself in 457. But then um, Nehemiah picks up on that uh, decree and receives a letter from Artaxerxes to simply go and re rebuild the wall in Jerusalem and things like that. Because of the language about rebuilding Jerusalem and the wall, most Bible prophecy students opt for the 445 or 444 date instead of the 457, like um, 12 years earlier. But if you think about it, there's only 12 year difference between the actual decree in 457 and the letter that was given to Nehemiah in 445, 444-ish. Let's go with 444, just to keep it at 12 years. Um, so uh, Alan Parr goes with the 457, but all this does is affect really the the uh, the end, what we call the uh, terminus ad que, uh, quo. I'm sorry, the terminus ad quem. That's the ending point. Um, the beginning would be the terminus a quo. So the terminus ad quem, the ending point of the um, six of the 483 years. The only difference between the 457 starting point and the 444 starting point is that 12-year difference, which affects either the date of the beginning of Jesus' ministry in 27 AD as the ending, or his um, writing into um, Jerusalem or being um, hung on the cross a few years later. Um, that That's really sliding the scale. I mean, that's minor, you know, 12 years. That's a pretty... That's a lot of that's a little bit of fudge room that we can go with, given the fact that it's difficult to pinpoint exactly when ancient uh, calendars start and end based on the lack of um, historical records to know. So um, but this is another helpful chart. We'll turn to this over and over again. He's got all the main main pieces on there. The rebuilding of Jerusalem in the 49 years, the 430 years of leading up to the coming of the Messiah, the prince. Um, and then he's got the prophetic gap that I agree with that must be there. 
And then we've got the final seven years sitting apart from the uh, previous 483. And of course, in uh, Alan Parr's estimation, uh, the tribulation is seven full years long. Um, uh, the uh, he he doesn't even put the um, rapture at the beginning. I'm sure he is a pre-tribber, though. He does put the second advent of the Messiah at the far end of the seven years, which is exactly where it belongs. All right, so we've got about uh, 25 minutes left. So we're about halfway through this first hour of our study. You're listening to um, Eschatology, a biblical study of end-time events. My name is Ari ben Lyman Hanavi. Let's jump now into the study proper, now that we've kind of prepped ourselves with all these charts and background material. Oops, sorry, one more chart. Looking at just the 70th week itself, not the 483 years part of the 490, not the larger chunk, but the last 70th week itself, which we will get to in time, this chart shows the beginning, right, the um, terminus a quo, the beginning of the counting at 444 BC. Again, remember there's just a 12-year difference from what I understand is the actual decree of Artaxerxes in his second year that's recorded for us in the Bible and where it actually has a decree. And there even this language about Artaxerxes saying, hey, let's stop the building for a little bit and let it not start up again. Speaking of Jerusalem and the temple, let's not let it start up again until I decree it so, right? Artaxerxes is this, is this Persian ruler who's um, calling the shots. And so during this time of getting everything set up, we've got a lot of people that show up on the scene. There's Cyrus at the very beginning that's spoken up in the book of Isaiah. And then we've got um, uh, Artaxerxes who shows up. We've got um, Ezra, who's one of the key players. Then we've got Nehemiah, who's one of the key players. But by the time we get to Nehemiah and the year 444 and, and Artaxerxes and the letter that uh, Artaxerxes gives Nehemiah that we read about in the book of Nehemiah, at that point in time, uh, Isaiah sent to build the temple and the wall. I'm sorry, not the temple, the the the, um, the city and the walls. And at that point in time, there are no more decrees that are issued. So technically, if you pick the 457 date, like Alan Parr does, or you pick the 444 date that many uh, premillennials pre do, like I do as well, um, it, it doesn't really matter. There's only a 12-year difference between those. And so that's, that's enough wiggle room for us to stay in the same room. Um, it's it's only until you pick um, like say the Cyrus date, which is way far uh, farther down the road, almost 80 years f earlier. Um, like people like Chris White, that you really begin to make some serious changes to the um, the, the dates here. But when we look at the 70th week um, uh, of Daniel, and actually, you know what? This is the same basic chart. I was going to say this is focusing only on the 70th week, but this is the same basic chart. You got seven weeks with 49 years, 62 weeks with 434, a gap. Messiah is cut off at 3380. Uh, those time frames, again, it could either be 27 um, or as early as 27 or as later as 33, something to that effect. Church age gap in the middle, and then the final 70 years sitting off, off of, apart from it. And again, I believe the gap must be here for a significant reason that I will detail as we get into the study. Because I know that there are some, like again, the preterists say there's no gap. But then they have to explain what is meant by the, the times of the Gentiles and the church age that we currently live on. And I guess, um, what do we do with all the details of, of Revelation where... Uh, the mark of the beast supposedly has come and gone. The um, tribulation is supposedly come and gone. Um, the Antichrist is supposedly already come and gone and cast into the lake of fire already. Uh, the millennial kingdom is so supposedly come and gone. The great right throne judgment has come and gone. I mean, there are a lot of really difficult topics in the book of Revelation. 
that the full-blown predators, hyper predators, have to contend with that I think push it into the danger zone. All right, let's jump into the study. Daniel chapter 9, verses 24, 25, 26, and 27. I'll read the passages first. I'm not going to read the Hebrew on the right side of your screen, but I've got it there just in case I need to reference a few words in there. Okay, let's read this first. Here's what Daniel has to say. This is the NASB version of your Bible. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Verse 25, So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree, right, there's the word decree, which in the Hebrew is actually just the word word, right? Um, uh, from the issuing of a, of a word, mean matzah davar, right? The, the, the Hebrew word over, oops, there, uh, is just the word davar, which is a spoken, but it carries the weight of an official decree. Which is why um, uh, prophecy students uh, think that the word decree is really the best way to interpret it uh, in this particular context. But no one discerned that from the issuing of the word, literally, but the, the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, which is key, because it talks about Jerusalem, but the context includes the temple, because we're going to talk about the defiling of it in the next few um, uh, wordings, next few parts of the past, of the prophecy. But from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, uh, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza, moat, and even in times of distress. Yes, I'm aware there are differences of opinion between uh, who this Messiah is or who he isn't. We'll deal with that later. Verse 26, then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. All right. Um, let's keep reading. Verse 27. Here's where things get a really challenging because of the near far aspects of prophecy, because of the fourth beast of, of Daniel chapter seven, and because of the fourth metal, the bronze in the statue, where there's this now and not aspect of the bronze and a now and not yet aspect of the um, beast, the fourth beast. We now encounter in verse 27, this kind of now not yet aspect of this person who is a prince or a ruler or an anointed one or something like that. It suddenly says in verse 27, he will make a firm covenant. And you have to ask yourself, who's the he, right? How many individuals have been mentioned in this prophecy? We'll look at that in a moment. But for now, let's keep reading. He'll make a firm covenant um, with the many for one week. This, by the way, is my, in my opinion, is one of the easiest way to ascertain why the last 70th week of Daniel is a full week and not just merely three and a half years like are spoken of in other parts of the Bible. Because it says he'll make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but then it says, but in the middle of the week, he'll put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. So it's definitely a week, right? From a number of contextual clues. Number one, all of the other weeks have been full seven-year time frames. The seven times sevens, right? The forty-nine years, and the uh, seven times uh, the sixty-two. The 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 um the the other part of the um prophecy, the four hundred sixty-three, I believe, um that we looked at earlier. Those have all been full uh, uh units of seven, um 
you know, multiplied. So it makes sense that this must be in order for it to fit the 77s, the 490, it must be a full seven year time period as well. It can't simply be um, three and a half. There's some debate whether or not the three and a half is split, right? Uh, where, where there's a time bet between the three and a half one part and three and a half the other. I think that's a very weak position to go with, although there's a possibility. I don't, I don't think it's a probability. Number one, this individual makes a covenant for a week. So that seems to suggest a single unit. He doesn't say he makes a covenant for three and a half years. He makes a covenant for one week. And the second thing is that he, in the middle of this week, he um, breaks his word. He puts in his stop the sacrifice and grain offering um, and things like that. And we're taught, we'll read about this a little later on as well. Daniel chapter um, uh, 10, 11, and 12, as well as Revelation, uh, fill in some more details about this um, what, this uh, midpoint event, which is very, very significant. Uh, so just kind of perk your ears up for that about the middle of the week event, middle of the 70th week. We're going to zero in on that in, time, in, in, in later studies. But for now, he, in the middle of the week, he puts a stop to sacrificing grain offering, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. And that's the reading of the passage itself. So, Daniel chapter 9, verses 24, 25, 26, 27. Okay, let's begin to um, take a bite out of some of the commentary that swirls around this particular passage. You already know that I'm a futurist perspective. I hold largely to the idea that um, the book of Revelation is primarily a future-facing book, meaning there are events that John wrote about that are still yet future. When it comes to the book of Daniel, however, it's safe for me to take many of the details that the preterists bring to the table, along with some of the idealists and historicists, and put them on the table and examine them and and um, agree with many of them. For instance, in this prophecy about Daniel in the 70 weeks, like we looked at in the chart, let me jump back over to um, um, Brother Parr's chart for a moment. Or, I'm sorry, not that one. Let me look at this one for a second. Um, if you notice, the 70 weeks of Daniel, which I believe are 490 years of 365 uh, uh, uh I'm sorry, uh, 360 day years. Um, so this is why, let me, I, I, I apologize for not mentioning this earlier, but because to me, it's just apparent, it's obvious, but to others who might not have heard this before, this, maybe this throat goes over your head. When we're talking about 490 years, we're not talking about Gregorian calendar years like we use today, 365 day years. We're talking about biblical years, which are 360 days more like um, lunar, lunisolar calendar, where we have months that are uh, clocked off every 30 days or so. The ancient Hebrews used this type of calendar. Um, modern Jews today um, use the regular the modern calendar that most of us use as well when it comes to living your everyday life, 365-day, you know, Gregorian calendar. But when it comes to um, uh, religious studies, they still hold to the, uh, the, the religious calendar, which is 30-day uh, months. Prophetically speaking, uh, the 490 years must be made up of 300, 360 days. Um, I'm sorry, must be made up of um, uh, of a year which equals uh, 360 days instead of uh, 365. So 360 meaning 30 times 12. Did I get that right? Yeah, 36 times. Yeah, okay. So um, uh, looking at this chart. That got me side-reeled for a moment. Apologize that. Looking at this chart, the point uh, that's germane to what I was uh, trying to get at is that as we begin to break down this um, uh, Bible study or break down this uh, particular topic, uh, it's helpful to remember that 
most of what Daniel prophesied took place in the past. So it's under the water on the bridge. Now it's history. And a lot of it was pointing towards a fulfillment in 70 AD, just like the preterists said. But the part where the preterists, the full-blown versions, the, 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 the full preterists, uh, the part where they get wrong is not allowing for the near-far aspect of prophecy. And so if we can allow that preterism really represents a lot of the near aspect and futurism represents a lot of the far aspect, then we can have some harmony between those two views and not have to always set them at odds with one another like many Bible teachers do. You don't have to be a full-blown preterist and reject futurism, and you don't have to be a full-blown futurist and reject preterism. What you can do, like I'm trying to do, is hold a bit of an eclectic view where most of the prophecies are future, like the book of Revelation, and yet a lot of Daniel is preterist in the sense that, if, that a lot of it was pointing to 70 AD. So there's near and far, and I don't believe um, that, we can, that we need to have um, conflict between those two. So uh, let's jump into some of the commentary. What I'm going to do first is borrow the notes from a gentleman by the name of Joel Richardson, who happens to be a futurist, just like I am. Uh, you can find him on YouTube or on the internet, Joel Richardson. And he has a commentary on, the, on Daniel 70 Weeks, and he brings in this perspective of premillennial perspective versus non-premillennial when looking at the 70th week of Daniel. And the reason this is important for our study is because when we talk about premillennial, we're talking about the millennial kingdom at the far end of the chart here. Let me bring up a different chart that shows the millennium. You can see what I'm talking about. Uh, do we want that one? Yeah, let's use that one. Give me a second. Okay, yeah, this is the one I want to use. So in this chart, the new heaven and the new earth at the far right is preceded by, in other words, the darker green, is preceded by the 1,000-year kingdom age known as the millennium. That's what the word millennium refers to as 1,000 years. There are those within Christianity and in Judaism who are looking forward to a literal 1,000-year time to come on planet earth that's still yet future. Most of rabbinic Judaism falls into this camp. They're looking for a future thousand-year millennial time where the Jews are going to um, enjoy a worldwide um, influence, um, leadership, um, uh, Torah will flourish in that time period, etc., etc. They're looking forward to a literal thousand years. Most of rabbinic Judaism is in that camp. Along with them are many who fall into the camp of dispensationalism, as well as what we refer to as premillennial. We're looking for a literal thousand year time. Um, many pre-tribbers are looking for a literal thousand years, as well as mid-tribbers and post-tribbers are looking for a literal thousand year time period. It's only that camp known as amillennial, which unfortunately largely represents Catholicism and many of its sister um, kind of denominations, like I think Lutherans and things like that. Um, they represent what's known as amillennial, where they don't believe there's a literal thousand years at the far end of the age. They instead believe that we're kind of living in this spiritual kind of um, um, ethereal, non-temperamental millennial age. In other words, they believe that the, the number 1,000 is just merely symbolic. It doesn't really have uh, a literal beginning and end or anything like that. It's not a marked off time on our calendar. Like I believe, it's literal. So why is that relevant to our study? Because in the premillennial perspective, then when we look at Daniel's prophecies, 
again, when we say premillennial, we're talking about Christ's second coming prior to the establishment and setting up of the millennium. That's what we mean by premillennial. His second coming is pre before the millennium. Okay, so premillennial. What we find is that if Daniel's prophecies are, um, if the 70 weeks are all premillennial, then we're looking for um, all of these details to be uh, fulfilled in such a way that they are more literal in fashion. There's less spiritualization, less allegory going on, less kind of um, uh, uh, kind of symbolic, uh, sim- symbology going on. Symbology? Is that the really word? There's less of that going on. There's more, this is really historical, literal things are going to happen. Oddly enough, even the preterists are uh, largely... Um, as far as I can tell, are largely uh, literal. I'm sorry, they're not literal millennial. They are all millennial, as far as I can tell. I mean, again, we'll do a study on on preterism in a different day, separate study, maybe an excursus after we're done with all of this um, book of Revelation and Daniel stuff, if the interest is there. However, again, we're, we're going to see from uh, Joel Richardson, the premillennial versus the amillennial is a very important distinction to make when it comes to studying prophecy. It 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 locates you within a camp of Bible study, and so if you've if you're of the opinion, no, there's no thousand year millennium. Christ is already here. The kingdom is already here, um, and we don't have to look forward to anything literal happening down the road. Well, then perhaps you're an amillennialist. Perhaps you're a Catholic believer. Um, something to that effect, maybe Lutheran, that might be why you don't hold to that perspective. On the other hand, if you believe in a literal thousand years like I do, perhaps that means you're a futurist, or perhaps that means you're a, um, a dispensationalist or an evangelical Christian, um, some Protestant Christian, something to that effect, or maybe you're just um, rabbinic Jewish. So let's now look at some of those details as they impact uh, our study on, the, on this part of Daniel. This is going to prep us for a study that I'm eventually going to be using over the next few weeks, put together by a gentleman by the name of Pastor um, David Guzik. You remember his name from my um, uh, Matthew twenty Matthew uh, study where we talked about um, uh, um, Matthew's um, rent. What's the what was the study on? Um, gosh, I'm drawing a blank. It was, it was the Book of Matthew, and I did the study, but I just I can't remember exactly. But it was the idea of um, of uh, looking at different Christian perspectives and then a Messianic perspective. And at that time, we looked at John MacArthur, we looked at David Guzik, we looked at um, GodQuestions.org. Uh, it's available on my website, The Matthew Study. But in that time, we introduced a pastor by the name of David Guzik, who's written an entire commentary on the entire Bible. Wow, that's fantastic. I mean, I wish I was at that at that level in my, in my walk with Messiah and my maturity in Christ to be able to, uh, and my academic um, uh stature to be able to write and commentary on the entire Bible. I, I do have a commentary on the entire Torah, uh, the first five books, which you can get on my website, but not the entire Bible. So David Guzik has his website entitled EnduringWord.com. He's got um, a commentary that is very, very easy to understand. It's got an outline form format to it, and we're going to be using that as our um, study uh, because I agree with most of what he uh, writes here. But before we get there, let's look at Joel Richardson's um, talk about um, some of these details about the uh, interpretive perspectives facing us when we're looking at the book of Daniel. I'll just read down through these and then we'll call it quits for tonight. And then starting next week, we'll pick up here again. I'll probably read it one more time and then launch us forward into David, uh, Pastor Guzik's study. But 
Joel Richardson has this study that's available online. Um, I can't remember the name of his website, um, but uh, I'll leave it in the little, uh, maybe in the, the show notes or the, the YouTube comments below um, in the details, the description. But here's what he has to say. Uh, when, he's talking, when we're talking about the book of Daniel and we're looking at it through the lens of certain perspectives like the Jewish view, the Preterist view, uh, the premillennial view, the futurist view, et cetera, et cetera. Here are some of the details that he uh, brings to the table that we're going to have to contend with. We have uh, um, a heading known as the survey of the primary interpretive perspectives of this slice of scripture. We have the, first of all, um, point number A, the Jewish view. Uh, number one, the Messiah, the prince in that in the prophecy is interpreted in a non-Messianic manner by Jewish uh, Jewish teachers and Jewish uh, leaders. Number two, the terminus ad quem, meaning the conclusion of the prophecy, is 70 AD. Notice that's very similar to the preterism, right? Which makes sense from a Jewish perspective. They're not going to read the book of Revelation, so they're not going to have any perspective that's futurist. They believe that all of all of Daniel, from their perspective, which is the end of, of prophetic books uh, covering this topic, in other words, there's no Matthew for them. There's no second Thess- first and second Thessalonians for them. There's no book of Revelation. They don't need all that. They don't read all that. They do need it, but they don't read it. Uh, so for them, yeah, it makes sense that the end of the prophecy is 70 AD, just like the um, preterists say. Number three, the subject of verse 27 is Vespasian, the Roman Caesar, or Titus, his son. Um, that's their perspective. Uh, under number three, um, we have... Uh, five teachers that are prominent who teach this Jewish view. There's Theodosian, there's Josephus, there's Rashi, there's Maimonides, and there's um, Japheth ben Halevi. I think that's in the historical order that you would find them as well. So if this is your perspective from a Jewish view, this is probably why maybe you've read one of their commentaries like Rashi or Josephus or Theodosian who wrote a, um, a who wrote a major translation to the um, Septuagint, right? The LXX Greek translation of the Old Testament. Uh, Theodosian is a is a um, an author who supplied one of those translations. Um, of course, you've probably all heard of Rashi and Maimonides, right? Um, these are uh, perspectives that you'll find if you read their writings. Moving along, point number C. I just realized that he skipped B. I don't know why he skipped B. It must have been some kind of a typo on his part. But uh, it says uh, C. I, I would have put it as B. I mean, it goes from A to C. That doesn't make sense. I'll write into uh, 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 Mr. Richardson and ask him. Um, but the preterist view, uh, the view that I don't hold to when it comes to full-blown hyperpreterism, I do not hold to this view, but it's simply labeled the preterist view by most teachers. Number one, point number one, Messiah the Prince is interpreted as messianic. Yeah, that makes sense because the preterist view is largely a Christian view. It's a Christian perspective. It's just different from the futurist view. Messiah the Prince in the prophecy that we read about, Daniel 9, 24-27, Messiah the Prince is interpreted as messianic, as opposed to the Jewish view where he's not messianic um, per se. Now, um, Joel says that uh, he's interpreted as non-messianic, but when I read through Rashi, um, I find that Rashi says Messiah, but maybe he doesn't mean, he doesn't mean Jesus the Messiah. He means um, a Messiah or something like that. Um, but definitely the Jewish view is not Jesus, the Messiah, and definitely the preterist view is often Jesus, the Messiah, uh, when it talks about Messiah, the Prince, there are some, uh, versions of this prophecy where it is not Messiah, the Prince, uh, such as, um, Chris White, 
who's a Christian author, he believes that uh, the Messiah, the Prince here, I believe is not Jesus. He believes it's referring to um, someone else. We'll talk about, like, about that in time. Uh, but moving along with the Preterist view, point number two, the terminus ad quem, i.e. the ending point, that's what term, that's what the Latin means there, terminus ad quem is the ending. Uh, the beginning is terminus a quo. So terminus ad quem, the ending is 70 AD, again, similar to the Jewish view. The subject of verse 27 is either Jesus, Vespasian, or Titus. Again, the Praetor's view has a lot of similarities to the Jewish view here. Makes sense. Prominent teachers who hold this view, you can see them there. Uh, Philip Morrow, James Jordan, John Evans, uh, John Evans, R.D. Smith, and Dr. Kelly Nelson Burks. I might add, I believe that... Um, uh, what's his name? Um, R.C. Sproul. I believe he's also a preterist. I need to don't don't confirm it just yet, but I believe in in passing. I believe in in memory that R.C. Sproul, a, um, a prominent Christian teacher. I believe he's also a preterist. But then we have the amillennialist view. Um, this is held to by a lot of um Catholics and Lutherans, if I remember. Uh, number one, the term Messiah, the Prince, is interpreted as messianic meaning referring to Jesus. Uh, number two, the weeks are often understood in a non-literal manner, like the historicist view on that, on that chart, a non-literal manner. So the weeks are all symbolic, 70 weeks, 69 weeks, 62 weeks. All that is symbolic language. It doesn't have to be literally, um, you know, 49 years or 483 years or seven years. Not, all of that's just symbolic. So 70 weeks are all symbolic. Number three, the terminus ad quem, the ending point, is either 70 AD or the return of Jesus. Again, um, this is the amillennialist view. Borrow some themes from um, the preterist view. Uh, the subject of verse 27 is either Christ or Titus. So there's, again, some similarities, some overlap. Uh, some prominent people that you may have heard of that hold this view. Uh, Church Father Clement of Alexandria, Church Father Origen, and Church Father Augustine. They all held to this, what we might call, amillennialist view. A view that I don't hold to myself. All right. Um, and then speaking of Augustine, um, there's a, I'm sorry, John Calvin's on that list as well. But speaking of Augustine, um, there's a quote, all of the prophecy of the 70 weeks was fulfilled at Christ's first advent. Therefore, it is not to be expected that the events will occur again at the second advent. That's, um, that's a quote from Augustine. John Calvin, who's also an amillennialist, right? John Calvin, you guys are familiar with John Calvin. Um, here's a quote from John Calvin. He says, without the slightest doubt, this prophecy was fulfilled when the city was captured and overthrown and the temple utterly destroyed by Titus, the son of Vespasian. So again, that's an all-millennialist perspective by a famous uh, Christian by the name of John Calvin. But more on the list, um, uh, C.F. Keel, H.C. Leupold, Edward J. Young, and Joyce Baldwin. These are more modern authors who are all-millennialists. And then lastly on this list is the view that I myself hold to, as does the author of this paper, Joel Richardson himself. He is also a premillennialist. Uh, premillennial, again, it refers to the second coming of Christ before the establishment of a literal thousand-year millennial reign on planet Earth. Premillennial. So I'm a pre-wrath premillennialist. That's what I hold to. But the point is, under premillennialists, and then we'll close with this tonight. Number one, the term Messiah the Prince is interpreted as messianic, meaning it's referring to Jesus. So with Daniel's prophecy of those four verses, Jesus is in there. It uses the word Mashiach a few different times, Messiah, 
the, the Hebrew word for Messiah, Mashiach, the usually translated, usually translated as um, Christ. Interestingly, is that the Greek word is not Christos in this version. It's a different word. Um, but um, uh, we'll look at that in time. Uh, but Messiah is definitely um, uh, Jesus, Messiah the Prince. The terminus ad quem, i.e. the ending point, is the future return of Christ, meaning still future to us, as in still has not had yet happened yet. So um, it's still around the corner. Number three, the subject of verse 27 is the Antichrist, right? As opposed to, if you remember, others say it's either Christ or Titus. Some say it's the Roman Caesar, Vespasian or Titus, but um, premillennial is true. I might qualify this. Joel Richardson says that the subject of verse 27 is Antichrist. I do agree with him that it is Antichrist, but with the near far aspect of this prophecy, the near person that's in the prophecy is um Titus, who destroyed the temple in the city, but the far aspect of the person who's going to destroy the city or um, have a heavy impact on Jerusalem and, the, and its temple in the future is the Antichrist, owing to the fact that Antiochus, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, as well as Titus, are both types and shadow of, of an Antichrist figure. Um, so um, the subject of verse 27 in proper is the Antichrist of the future, but it's the, the, there's also the um, Titus figure in the prophecy that will in verse 26, as well as uh, a little bit of Antiochus Epiphanes is is in there as well. Um, so they're kind of all mashed together because of the type and shadow aspect with the near not yet or now not yet near far aspect. But um, prominent uh, people who have held to this particular premillennial view, and then I'll close with this: we have Church Father Irenaeus, Church Father uh, Hippolytus. Um, and then we move on to more modern teachers, a Gleason Archer Jr., Stephen R. Miller, Leon Wood, and John Walvoord. Most of you have probably heard of some of those names, right? Um, Irenaeus, Hippolytus, uh, Archer, Miller, Wood, and Walvoord. And that'll do it for our study as we take a bite out of, um, of uh, Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. That'll do it for Eschatology, a Biblical Study of End Time Events. These are the live internet studies brought to you week after week. Uh, my name is Arubin Lyman Hanavi. I'm a member of the Harvest Congregation, a real live congregation in Thornton, Colorado. You can find us online at graftedin.com. We'd love to have you join us live in person at our synagogue services week after week. But if you're still just a little bit uncomfortable getting out and about, at least find us online and uh, follow our YouTube channel and watch the videos like you can see on my screen right now. You're also um, invited to head on over to tetzetor.com. That's my own personal Torah teaching website. T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com is the uh, URL address if you'd like to bookmark it in your browser. Um, you can see a cluster of links there to different studies that I've put together. This is not the exhaustive list, but it's just kind of the core list that I draw from. And so um, have a look around. And um, if you like what you're um, reading, um, be sure to investigate a little bit further because a lot of what I write turns into either a YouTube video or an iTunes podcast or something to that effect. Speaking of YouTube videos, find me on the YouTube platform at youtube.com forward slash C forward slash Tate Ministries, all one word there, C for channel. And you'll notice right away that you'll see that I update my channel daily. I'm typically uploading a video, like a short five-minute video on the topic, uh, 
every day, twice a day sometimes, and uh, even twice on the weekends or something like that. I try to keep fairly busy. Um, make sure that you uh, browse around through all the um, uh, channels and videos and playlists that I do make available on my website. And for those of you in post-production, you can see that I've got a bunch of uh, um, suggestions dancing around the screen. Subscribe to my YouTube channel. Uh, hit the bell for notifications. Leave me comments uh, or questions or corrections. Hit the thumbs up if you like what you're watching. And make sure to share the content with your other friends and family members in your social media circles. Some important details uh, that if you'd like to join us for our live studies is get access to Skype somehow on whatever device that you're using, smartphone or smartwatch or uh, desktop or laptop or iPad or um, you know Android device or whatever. Um, get access to Skype and um, that's the platform that we use uh, week after week. In fact, if you click on the blue Skype link that you see on my screen right now, it'll launch Skype in your browser if you're using a desktop or laptop computer and uh, you don't have to do anything any, any other installing if that's what you'd like to do so we'd love to have you join us week after week uh, via Skype but if not um, if you are on my website sometime at tatesatora.com take a moment to scroll down to the very very bottom to that black section where you can see some Hebrew writing and carefully pray about partner partnering with me during this difficult time that I'm still in it's been quite a long um, famine is what I'm calling it um, of uh, of um, employment, um, where I'm still um, just kind of relying on uh, God's grace and favor to keep me uh, afloat, uh, and that's accomplished through your um, gifts and contributions and, and prayers and support and uh, um, just uh, monies that are being sent in via the internet. This is the mechanism right here. Click the little yellow donate button um, that shows up on my site here, or in the each video I put a little link to this same um, uh, PayPal feature link as well as it shows up in my newsletters to give people an opportunity to help support me. Um, I'm so absolutely thankful and grateful to be on the receiving end of your generosity and I pray that the Lord will continue to bless you out there. Those of you who are regular givers, just absolutely um, so grateful. I can't express my gratitude enough at how um, how thankful I am and absolutely humbled uh, to be in a place where God's using you to bless me during this difficult time. So uh, please do continue to keep giving. Uh, those of you who are regular givers, those of you who just give me one-time gifts, that's fine as well too. I mean, uh, God uh, creates the increase. God knows the need. God creates the increase. Um, you guys are just on the on the uh, position of being used uh, by God uh, to bless me. So thank you, thank you, thank you. As I always say, be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others. All right, let's turn to a Trinitarian response to biblical Unitarianism. My name is Ari Ben Lyman Hanavi. Let's take the next 30 minutes to look at this topic. We have been talking about Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, as seen through the lens of the Trinitarian view and through the lens of the Unitarian view. We're borrowing notes from biblicalunitarianism.com's website. You can see my screen right now. It's a website about God and His Son, Jesus Christ. They hold to a non-Trinitarian view of the Bible. They do not believe that God is tripart. He is not three persons. He's one person. He's numerically one. God is one. Yahweh is one. He's numerically one. There are no three persons. Jesus Messiah is a human being that was anointed by God, glorified by God, resurrected by God, and now sits at the right hand of God, and therefore he is owed worship because God declares it to be so, but he's not eternal. Uh, he's not God of the flesh. He's he, there's, There was no incarnation of God to create the man Jesus. And he was not created by Jesus in some time in the past, like the Jehovah's Witnesses say, 
uh, or like the Arians say, Biblical Unitarianism holds to a fully human Messiah. That's it. As far as the Holy Spirit, he's either the um, power that God bestows upon humans in anointed fashion, right? He anoints us with his spirit, or it's simply another way of describing God himself. Since God is pure spirit and God himself is holy, the word Holy Spirit is just another way of describing God the being, the being, the singular being who's not tripart. He's uni, uni, unipersonal, not tripersonal. So that's the biblical Unitarian perspective. We're contrasting that with the classic or orthodox or biblical Trinitarian perspective of which I hold to. So if you're brand new to the study, I am a biblical Unitarian. I'm sorry. Wow. Let's try that one again. I am a biblical Trinitarian. I'm an orthodox Trinitarian. I'm a messianic Jewish Trinitarian, right? I'm a Jewish man who believes in Trinity. We're looking at Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, one of the most famous passages that we Jews hold to. We Last week we read, read the passage. I'll read it again for you. Let's read the English and the Hebrew, just for kicks. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Verse 5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. In verse 6, these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. Verse 7, you shall teach them diligently to your sons and talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. Verse 8, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and then they shall be as frontals on your forehead. Verse 9, you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Um, and then I'll stop there, because that's that's basically the first of three passages that are referred to by Judaism as the um, Shema, um, Shema proper. And just for kicks, um, I'll go ahead and read the Hebrew, right? I haven't done, read that in a while, but just for those of you who are joining me in these YouTube studies and listening to this um, um, podcast. The Hebrew verse 4 says, Shema Yisrael Adonai Elohim Adonai Echad. I'm saying Adonai for the word Y-H-V-H, otherwise pronounced Yahweh or um, Jehovah by Jehovah's Witnesses or other peoples. But I say Hashem or Adonai. And this time I'm saying Adonai. Uh, verse 5 verse 6 um yes verse and then verse 8, um, And then verse 9, the final verse, All right, that's the Shema proper. The first uh, part of three parts of the Shema. The second part is found in Deuteronomy as well. And the third part is found in the book of Numbers. But we're not studying that tonight. Germane to our study, or um, central to what we're looking at, is Deuteronomy 6, verse... Um, sorry, didn't scroll up enough. There are Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Here is where the Lord our God, the Lord is one. According to the theology of biblical Unitarianism, what we're ascertaining is that they believe that what the verse is really saying is that, Here is Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, ready for it? Person. Lord is one person. Now, they really mean the Lord is one God, but the way, what they mean by God is that there are not three persons. The Lord our God, who is the only God, is also one person and not three persons. So that's why I keep filling in with the Lord, the Lord our God, the Lord is one person. 
really they do affirm that there is one God. We found that out by reading their commentary. And we also affirm as Trinitarians that there is one God. That's where there's full agreement between Unitarians and Trinitarians. We both believe in one God. The disagreement is in the personhood of God. Is he one person? Is he two? Is he three? Remember, there's Unitarian, Binitarian, and Trinitarian, right? If you get more than that, then you're really getting strange in your theology. I mean, uh, if you think that the manifestations of God, the um, uh, the Theophanies and Christophanies, if you think those are actually persons of God, then you've got multiple persons of God. But I think that's um, that's um, um, I don't think it's heretical, but I think it's shaky theology at best. All right, so we already looked at um, some of the um, uh, different ways that this is translated. We looked at the uh, Greek Septuagint as well. Akui Yisrael Kurios Atheos Hemon Kurios Ace Esten, which which shows up right there. Uh, the Lord is one, um, and we also began to entertain this idea that the reason that many within within the camp of biblical Unitarianism, as well as rabbinic Judaism and, say, Islam, the reason they can't see a tripart God is often because they're stuck in what I call Old Testament mode or Old Testament mentality. The idea is that God revealed himself as Trinity in the pages and history of what is now known as the New Testament or the New Testament times, that little margin between your Old Testament and New Testament in your Bible where the history was lived out and then it was written down years later in the pages of the New Testament, but it was lived out in real time in that little margin area. And so the writers of the New Testament, like the disciples and Paul and those writers, they are all what we might call um, experiential Trinitarians. They experienced the incarnation and the Trinity in real time and then went later on to write about it as the Holy Spirit gave them um, inspiration to do so. But part and parcel with this idea of Trinity and incarnation is this idea of biblical mystery. We looked at this last week. Go back and listen to episode number 100 or 211. The reason that Trinity is not seen very clearly in the Old Testament is because God veiled the incarnation in mystery. And that's why rabbinic Judaism and historic Jews and national Israel today rejects incarnation. And it's my uh, estimation that this is why largely biblical Unitarianism also rejects uh, incarnation and Trinity is because they're drawing their hermeneutic primarily from a pre-mystery perspective meaning they're they're camped out in this idea that the old testament is all there is to say about god if they were they would they'd be accepting the new testament but for the life of me they 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 play short shrift to the new testament and 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 make the old testament as if that's all there is to say about god but i'm sorry that that isn't all there is to say about god god has more to say about himself in the new testament and in the in the incarnation of God as Messiah as Christ, you know, in the incarnation from from God to man, that's where we have the persons of God being revealed more fully, and the mystery unfolding that God locked up in the Old Testament and revealed in the New. And this becomes a hermeneutic key for to help us understand Trinity and affirm it is the fact that a it was a mystery, which explains why it was hidden from the Old Testament saints and writers and readers writers and readers and two the fact that it's now been revealed to us by the power of the holy spirit so as we work through this idea of mystery 
we um, picked up on this verse in um, um, uh, Timothy, First uh, Timothy three sixteen, which reads in the NASB by by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. And then Paul goes on to elaborate: He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. And we talked about this idea that godliness is right living within the perspective of knowledge of God. How you live for God is directly impacted by how you know God or how you don't know Him, right? So your knowledge of God, your relationship with God is going to drive your, um, your I'm sorry, let me say that again. Your relationship with God and your knowledge of Him, theologically, is going to drive your lifestyle, how you live for God and what you do about it. So it's no wonder that rabbinic Jews don't live for God the way that we Christians do because their relationship to God lacks the Messiah. Therefore, it's it's more superficial. It's head knowledge. They say it's heart knowledge, but they're being deceived because the relationship has not come to a fullness yet. Paul lets us know that this mystery of godliness, i.e. godly living, when we say godliness, we're talking about right living for God. Um, we could actually um, uh, pull up, uh, let me see, do I even have this word defined? Uh, looking at Strong's numbers, um, I, I didn't, but just uh, take my word for it. The reason this is uh, uh, relevant to our study is because when Paul goes on to describe godliness, that is living for God, uh, uh, which is anchored in our knowledge and understanding of God, the understanding of God includes these particular topics. And the topics are, or the, uh, the the concepts are, he who was revealed in the flesh. Now, we already talked about this. We're going to look at this now, tonight. We left off kind of with this cliffhanger last week. Who is Paul talking about when he says, he who was revealed in the flesh? Well, on the one hand, it's Messiah. He is Messiah. Messiah was revealed in the flesh, right? Yes, he was. But on the other hand, if we're talking about incarnation, then the, he is actually God, the being who was revealed in the flesh in the person of Messiah. So he could be God. And so your translation is going to reflect your particular perspective. Is the he God or is the he Messiah? Now watch this. This is what we left off with last week. By the way, Paul also goes on talking about uh, it was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. What's the impact of he being revealed in the flesh, about God being revealed in the flesh or Messiah being revealed in the flesh? On the one hand, if it's God that was revealed in the flesh, then we're talking about full-blown incarnation. We're talking about full-blown persons of God. In other words, this verse refutes the biblical Unitarianism perspective that God can become human and God became incarnate. In the person of Messiah, because it says he was revealed in the flesh, and then contextually, the person who was vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, and believed on the world, and taken up in glory, is unmistakably Yeshua. Right? It's not just God. It is unmistakably talking about Messiah. However, if the he is merely Jesus, he was revealed in the flesh, and we're simply talking about his, his humanity, then perhaps biblical Unitarianism has a leg to stand on. Maybe it's no big deal that Jesus was revealed in the flesh. This just simply means that he was a human, meaning he started out in the thought of God and then he became a human being, meaning he's no his revealing in the flesh is no different than me being revealed in the flesh. He just entered into the world the same way that all humans entered into the world, 
minus Adam and Eve, but everyone else entered into the world the same way. They come out of other humans, right, through the birth process. And maybe that's what um, uh, Paul is talking about, other than the fact that his was a, as a miraculous birth, birth, but which biblical Unitarians agree with. So what I said I was going to do this week was show you the different manuscript differences as to why when we look at this passage in different translations, um, in fact, let me go and do that for you real quick and show you. I didn't have this opened up. Oops, let me try that one more time. I want this open in a second tab. There we go. Um, by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh. Let's just park out on that on that clause. If you look at different um, translations over here, oops, we don't want it that big. There we go. Uh, different translations have different ways of describing who was appearing in the flesh. NIV says he appeared in the flesh. NLT, Christ was revealed in a human body. ESV, he was manifest in the flesh. Berean standard, he appeared in the flesh. Berean literal, who was revealed in the flesh. But watch what happens when you get to KJV. God was manifested in the flesh. Do you think this is just translator bias? Think it's the same Greek word and they just decided to fill in with their translation of God? Well, let's find out. When we turn to this particular passage in um, the Greek, uh, we have two large manuscript families to pull from. I know there are smaller, minor manuscript um, documents, fragments, and things like that, papyri that we could examine. But for the sake of what I'm about to teach in these next three minutes, because I don't want to camp out on this, uh, I just want to show you that, largely speaking, there are two main manuscript families when we're talking about Bible translations. One of those families is the family of manuscripts that re is represented by the Alexandrinus name, and one of those families is represented by the um, uh, Byzantine, I believe, name. I'll put a little uh, flash, a little graphic on the screen for you to see this in post-production. So the A and the B, right? The name suggests Alexandrinus and Byzantine. And the um, Byzantine is what we also refer to as the Textus Receptus, or the majority text. And the reason it's called that is because it represents the larger um, number of manuscripts that are available for us today. Um, the Alexandrinus, by comparison, has a smaller number of um, uh, manuscripts that are discovered. So the the uh, Alexandrinus slash, I'm sorry, the uh, uh, Byzantine slash, uh, Vaticanus slash majority slash uh, Texas Receptus. They all have. They're all referring to the same thing. More manuscripts to work with. Although they're newer in history, newer uh, in age, they're not as old as the Alexandrinus, which it's older. But we discovered the um, uh, the uh, uh, Byzantine ones first, and then later on in history, we, f we discovered the Alexandrinus ones, the older ones. So a little bit of um, comparison between the two, but. Germane to our study, germane to my topic right now, is that if you have a KJV version of the Bible, you're going to have some wording differences, textual variants, versus if you have, say, maybe an NASB version or NA or ESV version of a Bible or something like that, like a newer translation. Remember, KJV is one of the older translations, and so it, it relied on um, many of the older manuscripts until we discovered the Alexandrinus uh, manuscripts. So, looking at these Greek texts, the the Berean Greek New Testament, um, the first few words, uh, kai homologumenos mega estin ta taste um uh, mus hos 
This clause that I'm reading right, oops, again, hang on, let me scroll up, there we go. This clause that I just read um, in the Greek, uh, this is from the older manuscript, but newly, more newly discovered, and thus it's more representative of a newer translation of a Bible. And the part that's um, most that should jump off the screen for us, I'll just highlight it, is that part. Has Ephanerothe in Sarki. That part, he was revealed in the flesh. That's all it says. So having that as our starting point, we can see that the next manuscript, SPL Greek New Testament, also has a similar clause. Has Ephanerothe in Sarki. He was revealed in the flesh. Likewise, the uh, Nestle Greek New Testament from 1904 has a similar clause in it. Same thing, has Ephanerothe in Sarki. And likewise, the Westcott and Hort uh, 1881 has a similar clause, has Ephanerothe in Sarki. Uh, Westcott and Hort's version, NAS, uh, NA27 variants, similar. Uh, Westcott and Hort, NA28 variants, similar. However, Notice when we start getting into the Byzantine majority text, remember the A versus the B. The A is the ones I just read. The, the older in date, but more newly discovered are the A. And the newer in date, but discovered first are the B, the Byzantine slash majority slash Textus Receptus slash um, uh, those ones. All right, notice, uh, let's read... That first clause now, out of the Byzantine majority, says Kai Hamalagimanos, I'm sorry, Kai Hamalagimanus, Laguminos, that's a tongue twister. Kai Hamalagubanus, Mega Estin Tate U Sebeas, who Musterion, Theos Ephanerothe in Sarki. Now, in case you can't read Greek, which most of you probably can't. The clause that jumps off the page for us is this clause, theos ephanerothe in sarki. Compare that to the run right above it, hos ephanerothe in sarki. What's the difference between these two? It's this single Greek word. The one has hos and the other has theos. That's the difference between those two. And um, the um, word here, Hos here that we're seeing in the Greek right there. Um, this word is the, uh, the, the, let me just click on it so you can see. This word is the Strong's number um, 3739, which is the relative pronoun uh, he or who or which or that. It's demonstrative in this and that, who, which, who was, who appeared in the flesh or uh, who was revealed in the flesh. So that's why we're getting the translation from the A crowd of, of um, translations as who appeared or he appeared in the flesh, Ephraim in Sarki, the word Sarki means flesh, versus the Byzantine majority text and following sister or uh, 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 family of uh, manuscripts that read Theos. What's the word Theos? You've heard this before. This is God, right? We get our word theology 
from the word theos in the Greek. Theos, ephanerothe in Sarki. God appeared in the flesh. The ephanerothe. Um, go backwards here. A few words. Uh, sorry about that. There we go. Ephanerothe right there is the to make visible, to make clear the uh, the appearing part. So going back to looking at these um, transcripts, the Byzantine majority, Theosophanerothe in Saraki, the Greek Orthodox Church 1904, Theosophanerothe in Saraki, the Tischendorf 8th edition 1872, um, Hasophanerothe in Saraki, so he was revealed in the flesh, or who was revealed in the flesh. But Scrivener's Textus Receptus 1894, Theosophanerothe in Saraki. Likewise, the 1550 version, Theosophanerothe, and the Beza Greek New Testament, Theosophanerothe. Uh, in Saraki. So, what's the point? The point is, there's good reason now to understand why. Got a little smaller so we can see more translations. The KJV has God was manifested in the flesh, versus other versions say He appeared in the flesh, making the argument a little challenging. Which one is right? Again, the older of the two are, is the Alexandrinus, the one that says He was manifested in the flesh. The newer of the two, newer, uh, newer in age, is the um, the Textus Receptus versions that say God, where they add the word God. But the one that was discovered first is, and the one that has more manuscripts uh, to work from, is the 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 one that says God. So which one is the right one? Well, I'll let you guys decide because really, in the end, they both work together. God was manifested in flesh which is equal to Jesus being the one who is the one that's incarnate, the one that, uh, that we're dealing with. God became a man uh, in the incarnation is the point, as if I can put the two back together. All right, so that was, that was helpful information. I think, at least I think it was helpful. Now we understand, well, depending on which version of the Bible you have, you have a different reading of 1 Timothy 3.16. Let's now, again, um, begin to move through uh, some of these issues of... Um, uh, what does this word echad mean? Um, again, this is going to be probably three parts. Last week was part one and two. Um, I'm sorry, let me say it again. Last week was part one broken up into two videos, part A and B as it were. Um, part one and two of study one, uh, of, of video one really, because I, I break it up to two videos on YouTube, but it's really one study in the longer version. So for me, it's one study. One 30-minute study. This week will represent a, a second part, and then I believe next week will be, be the third part. Let's begin to entertain this uh, topic of what does Echad mean. Um, you know, Shema Yisrael, as we're going to read here in a moment, Hero is with the Lord of God, the Lord is one. Let me use my own commentary and read down through a little bit of what I believe Echad means. I wrote this in my um, Exploring the Shema Discussions on the Issues of Trinity study, which is available on my website. And we did study this um, out uh, on my YouTube channel, but let me borrow again just this section that talks about Echad. Um, Biblical Unitarianism says Echad means one. Biblical Trinitarians say Echad means one, but there are verses where Echad is used to talk about composite oneness, meaning um, you, uh, something where there's two parts, two components to it, but it's still one unit or something like that. Uh, does that affect the word Echad? Yes and no. Let's look at it. Here's what I have to say in my own commentary. All right, I wrote this uh, some time ago. Um, I have to say this. Allow me to quote the passage in question and comment 
on it. To be sure, it's the most famous passage in the Torah, the Shema of Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. All right, and then we have the um, uh, verse here, Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. The word Echad is the final verse right there in the Hebrew. And then the translated version, Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad, it's right there. Translitterated as E-C-H-E-D. Hero Israel Adonai or God Adonai is one. I do not believe that it has to be referring to one person here. However, I do, let me kind of tip my hand to you right up front. I do believe that it's talking about one God. Heroes are the Lord of God. The Lord is one God, right? That's why I think what's uh, what it's talking about. But let's read my commentary. I'm not going to do the little highlighting thing that just that slows me down a little bit. Anyone with anyone with some knowledge of the Hebrew text will realize that the that the word translated Adonai is the four letter name for Hashem, YHVH, also known as the Tetragrammaton or Yahweh, if you want to say it that way. The Jewish people use this name only in a very sacred and personal way. To be sure, today, Torah-observant Jews in reverential fear of misuse never speak it. Because of the understanding that the Shema defines the oneness of Adonai, which is what the Hebrew word Echad implies, many Jews are fiercely monotheistic. After all, is this not what the plain sense, i.e. the Bashat of the verse in Deuteronomy, is teaching? So, right away, in my understanding, the word Echad in this verse is is referring to a single God, one God, a unique God, who is the only God. Here, O Israel, listen up. The Lord, our God, is one God. There's only one of him. There's only one God in in contrast to multiple gods that other countries recognize and serve and bow to. We will only bow to and serve and recognize one single God. Listen up, Israel. There is only one God. He is our Lord, and He is our God, and we are His people. And there's only one, um, meaning there's only one God. We find out later on that this God is complex. And indeed, we've already seen parts of His complexity as we looked through the book of Genesis in this particular study. God Himself said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Who's the us and the our if there's only one God? It's not the angels, it's not the heavenly host. It's either the Holy Spirit, who's directly named in the passage, or it's the Word of God, who's the eternal Word of God, who existed along with God and is God, right? Who later became Yeshua. I.e., it's the Trinity all over again. That's the only one that, that carries the most theological weight given the total amount of Scripture that we have to work from, right? So, this word echad, I say in my commentary, it teaches us that God is the only God that we are to serve. To be sure, some translations render this verse as, quote, here, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Let me read that again. Here, Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. The unique Lord, the Lord alone, the only God that not only truly is, but the only God that we will recognize no matter what. Now, of course, we know Israel went on to worship other false gods in their history. They, were, they played the harlot over and over again. We find this out in our Revelation study that we're doing as well. But... Ultimately, in the end, they 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 should have affirmed that there's only one true God. It's just that they failed so many times over and over again. Fortunately, um, rabbinic Judaism, which came out of the exile and went on to repopulate the land of Israel, modern state of Israel today, this branch of Judaism, known as rabbinic Judaism, is largely and fiercely monotheistic. And for the most part, they're not playing the harlotry with other false gods the way they were the, the way they did in the Old Testament times, 
as well. So they learned a very um, uh, painful lesson. This is the primary meaning conveyed by the use of the word Echa, that the Lord is the Lord uh, exclusively and that he's the Lord alone, that he's the Lord uniquely. Um, that God is our only God is paramount to correctly understanding any revelation of him in his word. Now, having said that, let me read Dr. Brown's uh, statement about the word Echad and the fact that there are other usages of, of the word Echad in other parts of the scripture that people want to remind me about that I think Trinitarians sometimes kind of pick up on and run with, but it's we need to be careful not to run too far. Dr. Michael Brown is widely recognized as the world's foremost Messianic Jewish apologist. He writes in his lengthy Answering Jewish Objections to Jesus, Volume 2. Here's Dr. Brown's quote. The Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Deuteronomy 6.4 is the most basic Jewish confession of faith. What is meant by the one, what is meant by the word Echad, the word one, that is found in this confession? Dr. Brown says, Messianic Jews understand this to being a compound unity, while traditional Jews understand it to be an absolute unity. Now, notice the difference. Dr. Brown, who himself is a Messianic Jew, who has had numerous debates with rabbinic Jews over the issues of Jesus as Messiah and Trinity and things like that, Dr. Brown says that Messianic Jews understand this to mean a compound unity. He doesn't mean that there are more than one God, when he says compound unity, he's simply trying to um, explain the aspect that God in his singularity is complex as a unity, meaning there's one what and three who's like we talked about with Dr. James White, one what being the being of God, three who's being the persons of God. Dr. Brown is in full agreement with that perspective of Trinity, one what, three who's, one God, three persons. Dr. Brown is a Trinitarian just like I am. We're both Messianic Jews. At the same time, Dr. Brown recognizes that this word Echad, which we're going to read about here in a moment, that this word Echad, Echad also talks about God's singular existence as the only true God there is. The word absolute unity there, as expressed by, by uh, rabbinic Jews, is in exclusive or kind of is in opposition to God being complex enough to include three persons. That's what they mean by absolute unity. It doesn't mean that um, uh, traditional Jews believe in one God and Messianic Jews believe in more than one God. Perish that thought. All right, so Dr. Brown continues. The word, speaking about Achad, the word can mean a compound unity, though it doesn't have to. However, contra Maimonides, i.e. contrary to Maimonides, it does not mean an absolute unity. I'll talk about why this is important for our discussion in a moment. I have time. Most likely, Maimonides maintained that Jews have to believe that God is only one as a reaction to exaggerated Christian concepts of God as three. His idea of absolute unity simply cannot be found in the scriptures. All right, Dr. Brown continues. It might help to understand the meaning of Echad by looking at some other scripture passages in which this word is found. In Genesis 2.4, it's used in the phrase one flesh, which translates from the Hebrew as um, basar echad, Genesis 2.4. Let me just pull that just to make sure. Um, Genesis 2 verse 4. Didn't have this pulled up earlier. Apologize. Genesis 2 verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord created heaven and the earth. Dang, that's not right. Let me go back and look at that explanation. Maybe I have a typo. In Genesis 2, 4, Jesus, the phrase one flesh, which occurs 
It says Genesis 2 4. Um, Genesis 2 4. Maybe that's supposed to be 3 4. Give me a moment. This is the good. This is one reason why I go back and. Uh, it's not Genesis 3 4. Uh, maybe it's 1. Uh, it can't be 1 4. Maybe it's 2 14. Maybe I have a typo there in my commentary. Bear with me here. Uh, 2 14. Nope, it's not 2 14. Let me let me just find it here. The man gave the God was benefit the world fashion man he brought a man. Okay, it's two twenty-four. So um apologize. It says two four. I'll go back and correct that in my commentary uh, after I'm done with the study. It should say Genesis two twenty-four. Uh which here in the um let's try that again. Uh for this reason man shall leave his father and his mother and shall be joined to his wife, joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And over in the Hebrew, this is le basar lechad. So basar lechad, the flesh one, or basar flesh echad one. The two shall become basar lechad, one flesh. All right. So that's what Dr. Brown's trying to remind us of. Give me a moment. Alrighty, let's continue. Uh, so in Genesis two four, it's used in the in the phrase one flesh, which occurs when a man is united to a, um, a woman. In other words, this use of one refers to a compound unity, right? There's man, there's woman, but there's one flesh. There's two people, and they're not fused together, right? They're not melted together. They're not amalgamated together, right? They're not suddenly somehow blended into the same, um, you know, um, androgynous person. It's not one person. It's two people, but God looks at them, and in the mystery of that, he sees them as one flesh, even though there are actually two separate um human bodies there so it's from god's perspective um covenantally two flesh one flesh in exodus 36 13 the joining together of all of the many pieces into one tabernacle is described by the word achad and it's all right many one tabernacle many pieces in second samuel 7 23 and ezekiel 37 22 israel is described as one nation made up of the hundreds of thousands of people other examples could be produced but the basic point should be clear to say that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is a chad does not tell us anything about, his, anything about his essential nature, whether he is three in one or ten in one. All right, just says that he's one God. Uh, Dr. Brown continues, um, God and Moses strictly warned Israel to ignore all the other gods worshipped by the surrounding nations and to worship Yahweh and only Yahweh. Um, this is the primary meaning of the Shema, and this use of the word Echad alone or only can be found elsewhere in the scriptures. Uh, in First Chronicles, certain medieval commentators, including Abraham, Ibn Ezra, and Rashbam, believed the Shema was emphasizing that the Lord is our God, the Lord alone, like we mentioned earlier. Or as Moshe Weinfield entitles his discussion of the Shema, quote, exclusive allegiance to Yahweh, end quote. This interpretation, as we conclude with Dr. Brown's uh, statement here, this interpretation is also found in the Midrash to this passage. You can see tal the Talmudic reference there, Pesachim, as well as um, uh, Sifre to, uh, to Deuteronomy and Genesis to Rabbah. Uh, then in closing, Dr. Brown reminds us, the prophet Isaiah echoes this call to allegiance in his book. And in other words, this understanding of the word one is not primarily interested in the nature of God of God's being, but is meant to be a profession of 
faith. And then I conclude, and yeah, I think I can read my conclusions there, two paragraphs. Even though there's only one God, even though there's only one true God, the Tanakh is full of instances where God appeared in less than human form. And we talked about those um, previous studies when we were looking through the book of Genesis with the Theophanes and Christophanes. God has appeared as his angelic messenger, as a flame of man, as a flame, as a man with two angelic hosts, as light, and as a thick cloud. All of these reservations are uniquely and completely God, yet all were for the sake of the one being visited, right? God veiled himself uh, so that he could dialogue with the people that he was uh, interacting with and give them some message uh, so that they, they could take take with them. God of necessity must veil his glory so that we as frail men are not consumed in his holiness. Yet, and I say this in conclusion to my part here, and then we'll close this part of our study. We'll pick this up again next week with um, dealing with is God Echad one as a single or is he uh, one as a complex unity? We'll start by looking at um, Rashi's 13 principles of faith and see how that Rashi talked about how that God is Yahid. And we'll do this kind of comparison of Echad versus Yahid. There's a, a little um, uh, chart here I'm going to show you. Uh, Echad versus Yahid. But let me conclude my own commentary here tonight and then we'll call it quits. Yet the renewed covenant teaches us that Yeshua is the final and most complete revelation of God that the world has ever known. Right? This is my message to biblical Unitarianism over and over again. If you're going to call yourself Christian, stop chopping off the, the last third of your Bible when it comes to understanding God's unique nature. To look at Yeshua is to see the Father in flesh. Such a revelation requires a metamorphosis of the heart of a man. A natural man cannot understand the Incarnation. Only a man with a renewed spirit can understand this revelation. In a crude way, uh, I say, you could liken seeing Yeshua uh, like beholding someone in a mirror. The image of the mirror exactly resembles that which the mirror is reflecting, but in actuality you are beholding the mirror image. Such is Yeshua. To look at him is to gaze at the exact mirror image of the Father without actually beholding the Father himself. Yeshua is the veil by which the Father covered himself when walking among mankind. Yet Yeshua is more than that. In his own words, a quote from John 14, 8 and 9, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. We'll pick this up again next week. We might even conclude next week. If we don't, I'm not in any big rush. But that'll do it for a Trinitarian response to biblical Unitarianism. Let's close in prayer. Abba, I bless your name. Abba, I'm thankful for your word. I'm thankful for you sending your son and sending your Holy Spirit to help me to uh, live a life that's holy and pleasing to you. Thank you for the challenge that these topics represent, whether it be the Trinity studies that we just went through or the eschatology study that we went through earlier. Both of these topics are challenging to me as a Bible teacher. And so for that reason, Lord, I'm excited whenever I get to study and learn new things that you're teaching me. Help me to be um, a better student of the Word, helping me be diligent and to continue to press in and allow your Spirit to reveal um, truths to me, and also help me to apply them in a practical manner. Thank you, Lord, for... Um, uh, the preparation that you're uh, giving us as the people of God, uh, preparation for events that are going to take place in the end times, preparation for uh, sharing this witness about who God is and who his Messiah is. 
uh, helping us to live lives that are uh, godly lives, uh, lives that are pleasing to you. Thank you for um, my um, students, those who join me week after week for these studies. Continue to bless them and protect them and raise them up and provide for them. And bring us back together next week. And we'll give you the praise and the glory. B'Shem Yeshua. Amen.